Locked On Dolphins, hosted by Travis Wingfield. Your daily podcast on the Miami Dolphins, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. I'm in town to play the Dolphins, you dumbass. What is up, Dolphins, and welcome into the Tuesday, November the 19th edition of the Locked On Dolphins podcast. I am your host, Travis Wingfield, and as always, I am here to bring you your daily dose of Miami Dolphins football. And on today's show, we'll recap the key data points from Miami's loss Sunday against Buffalo, snap counts, and advanced metrics in the aftermath, plus a clue into Miami altering its game plan weekly based upon the opponent, and we'll update the status on QB1 and his surgery, what a new first-round mock draft might look like with and without Tua Tungavailoa, and we'll catch up on all the teams Miami are interested in the final six weeks of this season. All of that and more, but first, before any of it, I kindly invite each and every one of you to subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Tuned In, Google Play, Spotify, Top 200 on Apple, Top 100 on Spotify. Go ahead and subscribe, rate, and review the show. Give me a follow on Twitter. It's at WingfieldNFL. Voted the number one follow on Dolphins Twitter by Dolphins Twitter. Follow the show at LockedOnFins. We'll follow you back and check out LockedOnDolphins.com. We have the Aftermath piece up there for you guys right now, as well as all the video breakdowns from the game on Sunday. With that, let's go ahead and jump right in. We're going to go over all the snap counts here in just one second, but I wanted to make a note of this, and we've heard about it with Charles Harris and the way he talks about it on the defensive side of the game plan, how snap counts are determined based upon the game plan that week and what the opponent does well and what they don't do well, and the players on Miami will be deployed accordingly, and we've seen Chuck dip down into single-digit snaps at stages this season, but we've also seen him jump back up over 20 snaps like he did on Sunday, and the biggest indicator of this came in this game against the Buffalo Bills on the offensive side of the football via the tight end workload on Sunday, specifically Durham Smythe. Smythe has been neck and neck with Mike Gesicki almost all season long. Even when Nick O'Leary was here, the three of those guys were playing pretty equal snaps across the board, and the Dolphins ran a lot of 12 personnel, a lot of 13 personnel, a lot of heavy packages with a sixth offensive lineman into the game, but now in this one, Mike Gesicki plays over 50 snaps and Durham Smythe is reduced down to eight snaps in this game. Clive Walford played six. He was the third tight end on the roster. So why would they do this? Well, one, you could say the scoreboard late in the game dictated that Miami use the passing game exclusively, and that would be true, but still, eight snaps. This game was a one-score contest late in the second quarter, or about to be after that Alan Hearns fumble, so there was no excuse to not give Durham Smythe the same amount of workload that he had in the past, and the reason for it? The Buffalo Bills linebackers are loaded between Matt Milano and Tremaine Edmonds. Those guys flat out get the job done almost every single week. And then in the secondary, they've got good safeties, guys that cover linebackers like Jordan Poyer and Micah Hyde. They've got Tredavious White, one of the best perimeter cornerbacks in the NFL. But beyond that, that's where the Dolphins ate the Bills lunch in the game back in Orchard Park a few weeks back was going after Levi Wallace and the depth of those cornerbacks. And so Durham Smythe gets eight snaps and Albert Wilson gets a season high 36 snaps and Jakeem Grant also gets a season high 30 snaps, which by the way, he didn't get 50 yards, but Albert Wilson did have a season high in receiving yardage. Is that a lock win? 
probably not, but I'll take the consolation prize on that. So the point remains, the Dolphins will adapt their, sch their scheme and their style depending upon the opponent across from them. And going back to the conversation about consolation prizes, we have to talk about the quarterback position and the draft. That's later. Let's go ahead now and turn things over to the aftermath. This piece is up on LockedOnDolphins.com. The aftermath, Dolphins 20, the Bills 37, and we saw the pendulum kind of swing back the other direction this weekend for the Dolphins, a two-game winning streak that had fans excited about the coaching staff and the future of this team and the way they compete with a roster that is still very, very much undermanned. And we kind of lost sight of the preferred draft target up high in next April's draft, like a top five pick. But now things seem to be kind of settling down back in that direction. Dolphins had way too many penalties on Sunday. We talked about this on the recap show, but several of those flags were picked up because the Dolphins got beat on those plays anyway. Easily could have been eight, nine, ten penalties in this game for the Dolphins. They missed a bunch of tackles. They had zero pass protection all game long. And really, it was Jakeem Grant's huge play on the kick return and his blazing speed as well as Devontae Parker's big plays on offense. They kept the Dolphins in this game, but this was pretty much an onslaught from the Buffalo Bills from the word go. It's been that way against Bills quarterbacks going all the way back to Thad freaking Lewis, man, back in that 2014 game at home when Mario Williams almost ended Ryan Tannehill's life on that strip sack late in that game. But we go back to Josh Allen through four career games. He's been a headache for this Dolphins defense. Tyrod Taylor tortured us for three years, and then we had Thad Lewis in that 2014 game, of course, and then when it comes to Kyle Orton before that, I think that was probably the last time that Miami actually had success against a Buffalo quarterback, but back to 2019, the Dolphins defense now ranks 29th in total defense, 20th in passing, so that's still decent, I suppose, given the names they have back in that secondary, 31st in rushing defense, that's an absolute nightmare problem right now, and 31st in scoring defense, the Dolphins have the 10th fewest missed tackles, although they are still a top five tackle percentage rate team in the NFL. They rank 28th in pressure percentage. That's not good enough. 11th in quarterback knockdown percentage and 9th in blitz rate in the National Football League. The Dolphins offense on the other side, it's pretty ugly. 29th in total offense, 28th in passing. They are now dead last in rushing attack. Kalen Balaj has a lot to say about that. And they are 31st in points scored. They are 30th in yards per play and they are tied for dead last in sacks allowed with 42. And the funny thing about that. The ironic thing about that is that the Dolphins, Titans, and Jets are all one, two, and three in most sacks allowed. So the Dolphins are us, obviously. The Titans are quarterbacked by Ryan Tannehill, and the Jets are coached by Adam Gase. It seems like sacks are always going to be tied to this Miami Dolphins team. The Dolphins are ranked 25th in third down conversion percentage, and the red zone rank climbed up to 13th with a 60.9 touchdown conversion rate once the ball crosses the 20-yard line. And before we take our first break, I tweeted about this on Monday morning discussing the ironic nature of the Dolphins' new situation. And we're going to talk a lot about Tua Tungavailoa in this podcast. But isn't it just fitting, just in the way that the Titans and Jets are number two and three in sacks allowed in the NFL with Gaze and Tannehill, isn't it just fitting that Miami, after 13 years removed 
from the Drew Brees situation with the New Orleans Saints and the Dolphins team doctors not signing off on Drew Brees' shoulder. He goes to New Orleans, has been there ever since. He won a Super Bowl, probably should have won a couple of MVPs, broke every single passing record in the book. Isn't it just ironic that Miami now, 13 years after the fact, in a situation where they are just as clearly searching for a franchise quarterback as much as they were in 2006, isn't it just fitting that the Dolphins now are going to have to make another huge, absolutely critical decision on an injury and a medical situation at the most important position in fran- in the in sports and in the most important position in your own franchise and of course a player that could change things for the Miami Dolphins if he is in fact healthy it's just the Miami Dolphin way as we know no other way other than difficult really just arduous processes when it comes to finding our next franchise quarterback, our next Dan Marino, and just getting anything done positive for this football team on the field. We'll talk about that next. We'll talk about the aftermath, the snap counts, the player metrics. We're going to go over the Dolphins' key teams they're keeping an eye on for the final six games, all of their schedules. We'll do a couple of mock drafts. Plenty to come here on the Locked On Dolphins podcast at Wingfield NFL at Locked On Fins. I'm still feeling the situation the Dolphins are stuck in as far as going after the quarterback in the early portions of the first round in the draft next April. We'll have a lot of time, six months about, to discuss all of those ramifications, and we'll get back into that here in just one second. But let's go ahead and talk about the snap counts on Sunday as the Dolphins lose 20-37 to to the Buffalo Bills. And Ryan Fitzpatrick played all 69 snaps, as did most of his offensive line, Michael Dieter, Daniel Kilgore, and Jesse Davis. Evan Baim missed two snaps in the game. Julian Davenport played 52. He came out and Jamarcus Webb went back in for 17. And Keaton Sutherland played five along the offensive line. At tailback, Kalen Balazs gets 53 to Patrick Laird, 16 reps. Miles Gaskin played seven and Chandler Cox played four. At the receiver position, Devontae Parker leads the way again with 62. Alan Hearns is next with 60, way more than Albert Wilson's 36 and Jakeem Grant's 30. Gary Jennings played one snap, his first as a Miami Dolphin. Mike Gesicki played for 59 snaps compared to Durham Smythe's 8 and Clive Walford's 6. As far as the offensive grades go, we know that trading Laramie Tunzel was a big downgrade in value, but we saw the impact of it on Sunday between both Julian Davenport and Jamarcus Webb. Davenport has allowed 10 pressures in two games and exited both those games with an injury. On Sunday, he surrendered six pressures, two sacks, and had a run-blocking grade below 50, and his replacement, Jamarcus Webb, played 17 snaps and allowed three pressures of his own, one of those a sack, and that's good for a combined nine pressures allowed on 52 dropbacks, good for a 17.3% pressure rate just from the left tackle position alone. Inside at left guard, it's not any better. Michael Dieter allowed just two pressures, but both of those were sacks. I guess Pro Football Focus thought enough of his game to give him a 75 grade and pass blocking despite those two sacks. Can't say I agree with that. Jesse Davis got in on the act with five pressures of his own, while Evan Baim surrendered six of his own, and both of those guys allowed one sack as well. Devontae Parker's career day was really just pumping, jumping off the page, rather, with all the statistics he piled up. 20 yards per catch, 135 
75 yards on just nine targets. That's good for a YPT yards per target of 15. That's also a career high. He also drew Tredavious White on five targets. On those five targets, he caught all five passes for 80 yards and moved the chains four times on those receptions. Big, big day for Devontae Parker. Alan Hearns was two mistakes away from really instantly justifying Miami's faith in him with that contract extension. He caught four of his six targets for 53 yards, so still a good number, but he had the drop and the fumble, which really brought his grade down. He, Gasicki, Balage, and Miles Gaskin all had drops in this game. Jakeem Grant caught all three of his targets for 32 yards, and Albert Wilson had that season high with 26 receiving yardage. In the backfield, Patrick Laird had a 90.5 receiving grade, but a 16.7 pass blocking grade. If he wants to earn more time, he has to get that pass blocking grade way up from that. He had some bad looking reps in the game on Sunday. Three of his six receptions did move the chains, however, and Kalen Balaj failed the top two yards per carry, and he once again failed to get over two yards after contact. He was nine for nine with carries and rushing yards, and he had 1.78 yards after contact per carry. Fitzpatrick with a clean pocket, 23 for 30 with 273 yards, but when he was under pressure, he had seven sacks, was nine for 15 with just 50 yards passing in the game. On the other side of the ball, defensively, Christian Wilkins leads the defensive line in snap counts, 55. Devon Godshaw plays 52. Avery Moss plays 44. And John Jenkins gets out there for 29. Jerome Baker didn't leave the field. He was out there for all 71 snaps. Vince Beagle played 56 in the game. Sam McGuavin played 33. Charles Harris, 27. And Trent Harris, 15. In the defensive backfield, Miami played a lot of players on this side of the ball. Nick Needham played 70 snaps, all but one. Eric Rowe played 70 as well. Jamal Wiltz and Ken Crawley both played 63 snaps each. Rashad Jones played 47. Bobby McCain played 42. Stephen Parker played 31. And Ryan Lewis had nine with Chris Lamonts playing six snaps. That's one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine defensive backs saw the field on Sunday. And frankly, none of these guys are household names at this stage of their respective careers anymore. Needham, the rookie out of UTEP, was again the highest graded player on defense for the second straight game. He did allow the long touchdown, but he competed to the tune of just five catches allowed on 11 targets for 85 yards. He made six more tackles in this game and three of those for run stops. And remember, those are stops within two yards of the line of scrimmage. Since he became a starter three weeks ago, Needham has a pick, a sack, five pass breakups, 21 total tackles, and nine of those for run stops, gains of two yards or less. Really impressive work from the rookie. He's earning a chance to compete for the number two cornerback job next year. If he can do it for six more games, then he certainly will enter camp with a chance to start alongside Xavier Howard. Christian Wilkins had the next best grade, but I don't agree with that either. He had four total tackles and had one quarterback pressure, one of those tackles for a run stop. The reason I don't agree is because Devon Godshaw got a worse grade, but he had seven total tackles, four of those for run stops, and two quarterback pressures. A big day for Devon Godshaw on the stat sheet. Bobby McCain had the opposite, a forgettable day. He was Miami's lowest graded player, missing two crucial tackles and allowing receptions on both of his targets for 39 yards and a touchdown. Jerome Baker had 11 total tackles and made seven run stops in the game, yet he was tabbed with an ugly 52 grade on run defense from Pro Football Focus. Go check out the article on the aftermath. You guys can get all the stats and data from that piece we just talked about here on the podcast. And in the third segment of that piece, we talk about the hip, the hip hop, the hip hop anonymous, of quarterback Tua Tungavailoa as reports are coming in Monday after his surgery that the surgery was a complete success and the doctor that performed that surgery said that Tua's long-term prognosis is quote excellent 
end quote. That's it. That's the end of the quote. They think he's going to be back playing football as early as next season. It's a six to eight month recovery period, which puts him somewhere between mid-May and mid-July, given the nature of his comebacks off the ankle surgeries. I'm sure that happens before training camp. If I had to put money on it, I would say that if Tua gets drafted by the Dolphins or whoever drafts him, he'll be playing day one of training camp. Maybe not full go, maybe limited, maybe even on the PUP, but I bet you Tua's in a helmet and shoulder pads day one come training camp. Well, not shoulder pads because they don't usually wear shoulder pads on day one of camp, but you get it. But based upon all the prognosticating around this injury, it basically sounds like this was the only way the Dolphins were going to get a crack at drafting Tua. And yeah, the risks are there. The injury and the treatment plan should scare away some teams. He'll be poked and prodded in the medical evaluations all the way from now up until April. But with the Dolphins basically having no shot, in my opinion, to get higher than the third pick in this upcoming draft, I think that Cincinnati's not winning a game. You watch Ryan Finley on Sunday. They could win with Andy Dalton, but they're not going to win with Ryan Finley. He is beyond terrible. Luke Falk, terrible with the Jets. They're not winning a game. Washington with Dwayne Haskins, that's not happening either. So I think both those teams are solidified with the first two picks. And now Miami will have a chance, maybe with the third pick, to select Tua Tungavailoa. And some quick comparisons, since I keep seeing about, or this information rather, that Tua is beyond repair right now and could be suffering the same fate as Bo Jackson. The word out of Alabama is that since they reduced the hip injury within the six-hour window after the injury occurred, it creates for only a 10% chance of the degenerative nature degenerative nature of the hip that Bo Jackson suffered from, which limits movement and mobility for the player. And although quarterbacks do have to use their hips to drive the football pretty much routinely every single play, it's not the same as like a receiver, for instance, like Albert Wilson, who has to rely on quick change of direction every single snap that he plays. Tua will have some moments where he has to kind of jerk that hip, but it won't be a regular strenuous thing for him at the position. And to talk about other guys that had similar injuries and came back just fine, Priest Holmes suffered a hip dislocation and came back the next season with 27 rushing touchdowns for the Kansas City Chiefs. C.J. Mosley, an Alabama product, suffered a hip dislocation in the 2012 National Championship game. He came out of the draft two years later and went off the board number 17 overall. So it comes down to this. The Dolphins have a choice to make. Take the gamble on the best quarterback in the draft who has an injury history and concern and hope that you hit jackpot on that. I want to go now to a thread from Chris Kaufman, C.K. On Twitter, as he talks about the challenges and difficulties required of a team, all the hurdles they have to jump over to get themselves to the franchise quarterback, and he mentions it with Carson Wentz and even Jared Goff as the Eagles and Rams both pretty much sold the future to go up and get those quarterbacks. The Chiefs had to come all the way up from 27 to 10 to get Pat Mahomes. Even Trubisky required a one spot trade up with Deshaun Watson. The Texans had to come all the way up the draft board to get him. Basically, the bottom line is this. If you want your quarterback, the chances of him falling right into your lap is extremely difficult. And now the Dolphins might get him to fall into their lap, but they have to make the tough decision about the hip and his future in the NFL. And if he can be sustained as a good player, a great player for a long, long time, if the answer to that is yes, you do not hesitate to pull the trigger on drafting Tua if he's there for you. We'll finish this thing up on the other side, talking about some draft possibilities as well as the rest of the teams the Dolphins are keeping an eye on this season. But first, long day at work, still stuck at the office. Open the DoorDash app and choose what you want to eat and your food will be delivered right to you wherever you are. Right now, our listeners can get $5 off their first order of $15 or more when you download the DoorDash app and enter promo code LOCKEDON. 
Just a word of the wise. If you're going to attempt to drag my name and my football knowledge for all 70,000 of your followers to see, please, just please at least know that cover two means you're in zone. I mean, Jesus H, man, what are we doing out here? Let's go ahead and get back into this here and consider what Miami's first round could look like with and without Tua, six to eight months football recovery before he's back on the field for training camp. If they do decide to draft him, he can wait behind Ryan Fitzpatrick and let him learn the game and the system and the scheme behind Fitz. That would be the plan. And as I was told by someone close to the Alabama program on Monday, there's no word that he wants to go back to school. All the guys he's grown up with there at Alabama are going to leave this coming draft, whether it's Henry Ruggs or Jerry Judy or Najee Harris, who Evan says himself that the reason he went to Alabama was to be alongside Tua Tungavailoa. It sounds like his intentions will still be to come out in this year's draft. And we've heard some big time sources say that he's going to be a high pick. Again, this from Chris Kaufman, who relayed this from the Rams team doctor says that he would still have a clear first round grade onto a tongue of Iloa, even with the dislocation and I guess a wall fracture or whatever the hell the injury is exactly. I'm not going to pretend to be a medical expert here, but it sounds like from doctors and medical experts that are not connected to this have some concern over his long-term ability to come back and play at a high level, but there are also plenty of doctors in the league and the guys that perform the surgery on Tua that expect he makes a full, complete recovery that gets him back to playing football. So if that happens, if that's the assumption we're operating under here, here's what a couple of mock drafts would look like for me just in the first round for Miami. Obviously, the first pick goes to Tua. If you wait on this and you try to get cute, you're going to lose him. So don't do that and just draft him with that first pick. You will not regret it when he comes out to be a Pro Bowl quarterback in a couple of years. At the second spot, this is a perfect range for me, right around 11 to maybe 14 for someone like Isaiah Simmons or Tristan Wirfs. And if AJ Epinesa is still there, I highly doubt he will be. I think he goes off the board before either of these guys as I mentioned in Wirfs and Simmons. If Epinesa is still there, he is an absolute no-brainer. He fixes so many things on that defensive line. And then from there, in the third pick in the first round, you can really go any direction you want. You can go with Jedrick Willis or Creed Humphrey if you want to fix the offensive line that way, a tackle and a center option there, maybe even Tyler Bayadash from Wisconsin. You can go Christian Fulton or Julian Blackman if you want to help the secondary with Fulton, a press cover corner, and Blackman, a safety who can come down and play corner back as well. You can go after a receiver like Henry Ruggs. Maybe you go Jonathan Taylor in your backfield. For me, I'd roll with Blackman if they get Epinesa, and then you have two great scheme fits on your defense. If it's Wirfs with the first one, I'll do the same thing there. But if it's Simmons and that second pick, I'm going to take Tua's right tackle in Jedrick Willis from Alabama. And now without Tua, what do you do? Because the options become even more expansive. That first pick, I think, is for premier talent like AJ Epinesa or Jeff Okuda, the Ohio State cornerback. And then your second pick is when quarterbacks start to kind of enter the fray, in my opinion. Jake Fromm, Jordan Love, Justin Herbert. You can still keep Tristan Wirfs and Isaiah Simmons on that list as well. And if you don't go quarterback, the third pick in the first round, that's where Jordan Love becomes a big, big factor in that position for the Dolphins with that Texans pick. Again, Miami picks fourth, 15th, and 25th right now if the season were to end today. But it does not end today, and we have plenty of games still to go with teams like the Steelers and the Texans. 
Let's go ahead and run down those schedules here real quick. The Steelers go to the Bengals next week. And honestly, if there's a game the Bengals are going to win, it might be this one besides the Dolphins game, just because Pittsburgh is without Marquise Pouncey. They're without James Conner. They're without Juju Smith-Schuster. They're still with Mason Rudolph, which is a big detriment to their chances of winning a football game. They are so depleted on the offensive side of the ball and they couldn't score anyway. So if the Bengals, if something happens to Ryan Finley and maybe Andy Dalton comes in in the first quarter, then you might have a chance to win that game. They then are home for the Browns, which we saw how that went on Thursday night. I think Cleveland takes care of Pittsburgh. They go to the Cardinals and Kyler Murray could present some problems to that defense. Can Pittsburgh's offense keep up with Murray and the pace he scores at? Probably not. They're home for the Bills. We just saw what Buffalo did to the Dolphins offense. They could do the exact same thing to the Pittsburgh offense. They then have uh, games on the road at the Jets and at the Ravens. So I'm going to predict two more wins for the Steelers. They finish 7-9, and nine, and that puts them right around the 13-14 range of the draft, and that's where Miami picks second in the first round. For the Texans, they are home on Thursday against the Colts. That's a big one because after that, they're home for the Patriots and Broncos, probably going to split those two games. Then they're at the Titans. Titans at the Bucks and home for the Titans. This schedule to me looks like a pretty easy walk into an AFC South Division Championship. And if they do that, we then have to start thinking about if they lose in the first round or they lose in the second round. If it is a first round loss, that pick probably comes off somewhere in the 22-23 range. If they get to the divisional round, that pick's going to happen around 25-26. And of course, conference championship, we're talking about late 20s and Super Bowl year into the 30s. The Bengals, we talked about it on yesterday's show. They got the Steelers and Jets at home. Maybe there's a win in there. I just don't think so with Ryan Finley at the Browns, home for the Patriots at the Dolphins, and home for the Browns again. If Dalton comes in, I can see them winning two of those games. Without, they're not going to win any of them, and that's their plan. Washington's got the Lions at home, then at the Panthers and at the Packers. The Lions are pretty dreadful. If there's a chance to win a game, it's got to be that one. With Jeff Driscoll, even though he played well on Sunday, with the Lions secondary has been god-awful this season, that's a chance for my or for Washington rather to pick up a win. I still don't think they're going to find any wins. They'll finish out with Eagles and Giants at home and at the Cowboys. I just think that team is an absolute disaster right now. And the Giants are at the Bears, home for the Packers, at the Eagles, home for the Dolphins, at Washington, and home again for the Eagles. I think they'll win a couple of those games and get themselves to 4-12. and 12. So the strength of schedule battle between they and Miami becomes very important. Even though we know the Giants won't draft a quarterback in the first round next April, they still it would still be beneficial for Miami to pick ahead of them so nobody can jump the Dolphins in the draft a draft day trade and take Tua or whoever they might want to take away from the Dolphins in that third or fourth position, wherever it happens to be. So go check out the article on LockedOnDolphins.com, Miami Dolphins Tank Central. It is the draft pick tracker. We have all that information up there for you guys. We'll have the All-22 review on tomorrow's podcast as well as Crossover Wednesday. Looking very much forward to doing it with Locked On Browns and Jeff Lloyd because we're going to talk a lot about rebuilds and tearing the thing down to the studs like Cleveland did and now like Miami has done. But as for today's episode of the Lock on Dolphins podcast. That is going to be my time. You all, please be sure to subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts. Leave us a rating. Leave us a review. Check out the other Locked On Sports family of podcasts for all the local and national coverage of your favorite teams. Follow me on Twitter at Wingfield NFL. Follow the show at Locked On Fins. Keep up to date on the Daily Dolphins blog over at LockedOnDolphins.com. You guys have a great rest of your night. We'll talk to you again on Wednesday for another edition of the Locked On Dolphins podcast your daily dose for Miami Dolphins football.